Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corrie Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and uh, thank you once again for your company at today's discussion with one of Australia's most acclaimed and revered writers, Kate Grenville. Kate Grenville is the author of 16 published fiction and non-fiction books. She grew up in Sydney and spent time working in the documentary film business before moving to the US where she was studying and exploring her writer passion. Kate returned to Australia and as she says on her website, thanks in part to several Australia Council grants, she was financially able to start writing in earnest while working part-time. And as part of your studies, Kate, you embarked on a thesis and out of this evolved the wonderful novel, The Secret River. And I know many of our fans and gang here love that book as much as I do. Lillian Story, published in 1985, you won the prestigious Vogel Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript for that one. In 2001, Kate won the Orange Prize, now known as the Women's Prize, for the idea of perfection. And in 2006, The Secret River arrived and just generally kind of cleaned up and appeared on lots of shortlisters. The Commonwealth Writers' Prize, it won. It also won the Christina Stead Award. And it was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. And it has been turned into a television series and a stage production. The Lieutenant followed a couple of years later, then Sarah Thornhill, another novel centred around early European settlement of Australia. And this one, of course, A Room Made of Leaves, settles in nicely as the fourth in that suite. Over many years, Kate has taught creative writing and always been generous with sharing and imparting her knowledge. Kate, you have honorary doctorates from Sydney Uni, Macquarie Uni and the University of New South Wales. You are the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement in Literature Award from the Australia Council. And it was so pleasing to hear a couple of years ago, your services to literature were acknowledged with an Order of Australia. So I feel I should be curtsying to you. <laughs> Kate, Welcome and congratulations on the ongoing success of A Room Made of Leaves, now in its paperback edition, and it's reaching new audiences and gaining new fans. It's great to have you with us. It's just lovely to be with you. Thanks for asking me. Kate, before we get on to the novel itself and your extraordinary writing career, I just wanted to ask you a question that's been top of mind during recent months. 
with all our guest writers who live in Sydney and Melbourne, and you're in Melbourne. How has the past 18 months of lockdowns been for you? And what was it like indeed to launch the hardcover edition of the book during the first national lockdown? <laughs> Look, I thought it would be a, a, a disaster, but my publisher said, no, no, Kate, people are going to be reading a lot of books over the next few months. And he was right. I was wrong. I did a lot of Zooms in my tracky dacks and my Ugg boots. It was a fabulous way to do an author tour, I have to say. The only thing, I mean, I really missed. You know, I've always thought I was rather an introverted person and didn't really like standing on a stage talking to people. But actually, what this lockdown has taught me is that on the contrary, I love to be up on the stage getting all that love back from an audience. So I really missed actually meeting my readers. You see, you told the Finn Review last year when the book first came out, you were privileged to be in lockdown. You said, most of my days from choice anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's true. I mean, writers do lead a kind of lockdown-y life. So I feel very privileged. You know, I have nothing to complain about. I finished this book and I promoted it. I wrote an audio book for Audible. I started another mad project that I'm still going on with. So really, you know, uh, I have nothing to complain about, but I'm very conscious of just how hard it must have been for a lot of other people. So I don't take it for granted, my good luck. Well, it does seem that there were a number of important books that were published during that time. And as you and I know, a lot of publishers did put back and, and change mm. the scheduling, which I think, as you say, everybody was reading and that was probably not such a, a wise idea in hindsight, but we we're all dashing into the unknown then. So um, I must say that uh, A Room Made of Leaves provided huge companionship for me for a couple of days there. And it was gorgeous to enter the world of Elizabeth MacArthur, early European settlement in Australia. Thank you on behalf of the bookseller. <laughs> The novel is based on the story of Elizabeth MacArthur, a woman of extraordinary determination, resilience, and a woman with an innate farming talent. So we were thrilled when it won the, again, the Christina Stead Prize for Fiction. And of course, earlier this year, the novel was also shortlisted for the very prestigious Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction, which comes out of the UK. In an interview last year, Kate, you said, we as settler Australians have a lot of unfinished business with our past. And I wonder, can you tell us how fiction can assist us in the journey of understanding of that past? Look, I think the great thing that fiction can do is fly under the radar, like one of those black planes, of, our, of what we think we know. So we all grew up learning a certain version of Australian history. So we kind of think we know that, as I thought I knew about Elizabeth MacArthur and John MacArthur. And the great thing about fiction is that it can, because it's imaginative, it's not history, so it can slide in into the cracks. You know, you have this kind of carapace of this is what I know about this bit of our history. Fiction can sort of slide in through the crack there and introduce you perhaps to a perspective that you haven't thought about. And because it's fiction, it's a bit like a Trojan horse. You know, it comes looking, looking like something very harmless and enjoyable, and you hope that it is. But with it, it brings this other baggage of ideas and uh, thoughts and a new way of looking at things so that hopefully on the other side of it, you come out thinking, well, I thought I knew X, but actually, I now, knew, I now know X plus Y plus Z plus a few other letters as well. That's what I hope anyway. 
Well, certainly for me, I'm not sure about you, Kate, but my generation of Aussie school kids, we grew up with a very different view of Australian history with kids today. And in my generation, the con- the contribution of John MacArthur, an army man who travelled on the Second Fleet in 1790 and who la- later became the influential landowner and pastoralist, he was so important, he was on one side of our old $2 note. And yet with your book, and also I must um, commend, and you do too, um, in A Roommate of Leaves at the End, Michelle Scott Tucker's most excellent biography of Elizabeth MacArthur, which came out a couple of years ago. But you've both really made me rethink that narrative and how extraordinary Elizabeth was during John's long absences from Australia to actually keep the business afloat. That's right. I mean, for those who don't know much about Elizabeth MacArthur and John MacArthur, he was a a junior officer and he came out to New South Wales because it was the only way he was likely to get promotion. He didn't come for any altruistic reason. And he dragged along his wife and his infant child, less than a year old at the time. And he was a man of incredible, fierce, ferocious ambition and ruthless determination to get ahead, which he did. And he early on saw that growing fine wool would give Australia an export, basically, that would survive six months in the bottom of a a ship uh, where nothing else would. Uh, So he started to breed fine, fine wool. And he took complete credit for establishing the Australian wool industry. And that's why he was on the $2 note. He was known in my childhood as the father of the Australian wool industry. Now, as you mentioned, he was actually away for most of the years that the Australian Merino was being bred. John MacArthur was actually in England fighting various law cases because he was an extremely aggressive man and kept, I mean, for example, he had a duel with his commanding officer and shot him. Even in, even in the New South Wales of the, 18, of the 1790s, an officer who actually shot his commanding, commanding officer had to be, you know, court-martialed. So John MacArthur was actually away. So it doesn't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realise that actually it must have been Elizabeth who should have been on the $2 note. And Elizabeth herself probably had a lot of expert help from people who are now nameless, probably convicts actually, probably sheep stealers. That's what I've got in the book. The real person who, who really knew about sheep was a convict who had pinched a very nice ram. So what I wanted to do is what I've often wanted to do in books, which is to write the story that has not been told, tell the story of the silenced person. And because throughout a lot of history, that is the women. And Elizabeth MacArthur, it seemed to me like this fabulous opportunity to tell a story about a woman who had actually had a huge role to play in our history but unremarked, and who, because she left this extensive collection of letters, you could actually, there was something to build on. I always seemed to need to build on a bed of fact, and her letters gave me that. So it was a fabulous book to write. I had such a, I'm really sorry that it's over, actually. I want to get to the letters in a minute, because you have a bit of fun with that as uh, as the fiction writer, but I am interested in your thoughts on John MacArthur, because Uh, I was telling you before we began tonight that our six book clubs and my own personal book club have dissected this book. And I have to tell everybody, if you think that it's boring and dull to sit through six or seven conversations about the one book, when it is a room made of leaves, it is a pure joy. But there's been lots of analysis and dissection on the character of John 
MacArthur, you know, was he a psychopath? Was he a narcissist? What a blackguard, you know, and why did she fall in love with him? Just to quote Michelle Scott Tucker at the end of her biography, she says, and I wonder what your thoughts are about this, Elizabeth was a real-life Elizabeth Bennett who married a Wickham instead of a Darcy, albeit a Wickham who loved her as much as he was able. So bringing uh, to the fore those Pride and Prejudice characters we know, I wonder what was it about John? Was there something dashing about him or the ambition that that lured Elizabeth in or... Was he, in fact, a Devon version of of Wickham? I don't think he was charming the way Wickham was because a, a, another person, Elizabeth's childhood friend, describes him as um, well, basically haughty, unpleasant and contemptuous of old maids. I don't think he bothered much being charming, whereas Wickham did. I thought a lot about why Elizabeth married John because from an early age he was clearly... Uh, not going to be easy to be with. He was a he was a man of incredible ups and downs of moods to the extent that these days he'd probably be diagnosed as having a mental illness. So he could be savagely aggressive and nasty. Uh, and when I looked very closely at the at the dates of when things happened, I realised, as has been realised by people before me, that uh, when they married, Elizabeth was actually four months pregnant. That suddenly opened up a whole other reason for why one might get married, particularly in 1788. So I guess the question then is, which you address is, why why did she allow herself to be seduced? Ah, look, that's isn't that an interesting question? You know, as women, we kind of know what happens when a man flatters you. You know, we grow up powerless, basically. Certainly my generation, we grow up powerless. And there's a man flattering you and pretending that you have the power in that situation. You have the sexual power. And that's incredibly seductive, literally seductive. You think, oh, look at this. This man is, you know, groveling at my feet. I must, having thought all my life that I was weak, you know, uh, the weaker sex, no, I'm really strong. So I, that's how I portrayed Elizabeth MacArthur as just once going behind the hedge with uh, John MacArthur. And just once, unfortunately, was enough. So I, who knows? Who knows? There are different theories about about that four-month gap. Some people think it was just, it was quite normal to kind of jump the gun that they had an unofficial engagement. The thing is, he had no money and no prospects, and nor did she. Now, we know from Jane Austen that two people with no money and no prospects can't get married, no matter how much in love they are. So that was my that was my reading of it. And the wonderful thing about fiction is that you can properly dramatise one of the many possibilities. I'm not saying that that's actually what happened in the, with the real people, but it's one powerful possibility. And by looking at that possibility, we learn something about perhaps ourselves. You know, I learned quite a lot about myself thinking about why did she? Why did she let herself be seduced? Thinking about all the times I'd let myself be seduced by completely inappropriate men. And and you begin to realise that there may actually, reality has, there are many, many mansions in the house of reality, many different perspectives. You, the, the writing of The Voyage is, is, is wonderful and I don't want to, there's, there, there are many dramatic moments, so I want to leave that to readers who perhaps haven't yet explored the book. But let's arrive in Sydney town 
And I think she was only the second free settler European woman in the village. And a number of people in book clubs have been fascinated by your ability to create a place only from watercolours, really, and your own mind's eye. Uh, so difficult to look at Sydney Harbour now and imagine it as, as a primitive landscape with uh, very few buildings, mostly tents, uh, none of the man-made monuments such as the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and, and even the topography. It's very hard today in, in the modern world to actually see the extraordinary topography of Sydney and yet you captured it so fantastically and also the Parramatta region. How did you do it? Well, I think it probably helped that I grew up in Sydney and I actually grew up very near the harbour. So I have a really granular knowledge of the little wild bits around the harbour, which I you know, used to explore as a kid. So that gives you a model for what, where, where the central business district now is, what it would have looked like in terms of what the sandstone cliffs look like what the little creeks look like, what the vegetation is like. So I had that huge advantage. And, of course, needless to say, I steeped myself in every one of those watercolours and sketches. And the other thing is that I did, it's the part of writing I think I like best, actually walking on the land where the story is going to happen. And when you walk from Circular Quay to, well, for example, William Dawes, the, the astronomer, is quite a big, a very big character in this book. He had his, he'd had his observatory out on uh, what is now called Dawes Point, where the southern pylon of the Sydney Harbour Bridge is, basically. And one day I walked from Circular Quay to Dawes Point, and even now, even under the bitumen, in between the, you know, the skyscrapers, you can still feel in the back of your legs how steep that little hill is. It suddenly comes up, and then there's a little flat ridge along the top. So actually. If you're prepared to be kind of unsystematic, this is daydream stuff I'm talking about. It's wandering along. It's kind of, I think of it as mooching along. And you've got to do it alone so that you're completely kind of open to what might happen. And as you get, start up that very steep little hill and you start panting and you can feel it in your legs, you think, ah, okay, that really tells me something about what this was like. So I love writing about landscape. And I, now that I live in Melbourne, which I've been here for about three or four years, I doubt if I could write about this place because it's not in the grain of my flesh the way Sydney Harbour is. Kate, tell us about the letters. It's a device, the discovering a pile of letters, Elizabeth's secret letters. How, coming up with that idea, how did you come up with it? And, and I guess it then allowed enormous freedom for you. <laughs> That's right. Look, I read Elizabeth MacArthur's letters. Uh, there are a couple of very famous ones that if you look at any early history book, you read little extra extracts from them. And uh, I came across one in which she describes her relationship with William Dawes, the astronomer. She was very bored because, as you say, she was the there were only two kind of genteel women, so she, she kind of had no one to talk to. So she went and asked him for lessons in astronomy. She was clearly a very intelligent woman and she didn't want to just sit around doing needlework if that had been possible in Sydney at that time. So she wanted to learn astronomy. Uh, so she went out and, and he gave her a few lessons, made her an orrery and all that kind of thing. 
Uh, and she writes to a friend, you know, I asked Mr. Dawes to give me lessons in astronomy, but I discovered that I had mistaken my abilities. Astronomy is very hard. And I blush at my error. And when I read those words, I blush at my error. I thought, oh, wow, this is something very unusual. This is a woman in the late 18th century in a letter, which was a very public document. They were passed around the neighbours. This is a woman expressing something very actually quite personal. It's quite physical, it's personal, and it's, it betrays emotion. Because after all, why do we blush? We're embarrassed, we're ashamed, or, you know, we're hot, full of horny. <laughs> we were hot and horny. Thank you. Wasn't sure just how I should phrase that. <laughs> well, we're very comfortable here with that. <laughs> okay, good. So that gave me a whole other, so I thought, okay, what Elizabeth MacArthur is doing in these letters is actually sending a kind of coded, either consciously or unconsciously, you know, as someone who looks very closely at words, I'm looking at that and thinking whether she knew it or not, she was telling us something there and she may not have been aware of it herself. She was about to have an affair with William Dawes, which is in fact not, not implausible and it's certainly what I've written in the book. So her letters gave me this fabulous starting point. But the thing about them is that I began to realise that they were not just a code but actually a kind of, they often said the opposite of what her life was like. They are unfailingly Pollyanna-ish, at least the first ones. Oh, it's wonderful, the crops are doing this and everybody's happy and the sun's always shining. But in fact, when you read the history, other documents of the same moment, it was shocking, and her husband particularly was creating these horrendous problems. So I began to think, okay, Elizabeth MacArthur has already written the novel. She's already written the fiction. These letters are the fiction. So somebody else can come in and write the real story, which would take the form of her memoirs, lost for 200 years, the secret, hidden, possibly slightly scandalous, very frank, secret memoirs of Elizabeth MacArthur. So the book is based on this kind of conceit that I have miraculously found the secret memoirs of Elizabeth MacArthur, and that's what the book is. So I pretend in the beginning to just be the editor. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Kate, I wondered if you would do us the pleasure of reading the moment or one of the moments when... Mr. Dawes and Mrs. Elizabeth MacArthur. Yes, that's right. This is when they're still back in Devon in this little tiny village that they, uh, that they were both in. Remember, they cannot get married because he has no money, no prospect. He's the, uh, he's the most junior kind of officer. He has no prospect whatsoever. Oh, this is, this is John MacArthur. This is John MacArthur, sorry. So they've met in the drawing room, but they both know there's nothing in it. They can't put, there's no future in it. But... Through glance and hints too slight to be marked except by an eager girl, Mr. MacArthur let me understand that I was a source of some interest and I rose to his interest. It was not flirtation. If my friend Bridie had said, Lisbeth, you are flirting with him, I would have denied it, perhaps joked that what I was doing with Mr. MacArthur was nothing more than rehearsal for when another more eligible suitor might make his way to the Bridge Royal Vicarage. That would not have been untrue, but it was not the whole story. I did not see it then, but I can see it now. I was not watching him, but myself. Aspects of myself that had never revealed themselves were becoming visible to me and discovering 
the discovery was exhilarating. The boldest moment came in the afternoon before Midsummer Night, when we made arrangements to meet the following afternoon to stroll down to the village where the people would have their bonfire and dancing. Our visitors were leaving. There was a bustle of departure. Mr. Moriart and Bridie on the gravel outside, Mrs. Kingdon going down the steps to join them, Mr. Kingdom upstairs following a book he had promised to lend to Mr. MacArthur, and myself just outside the front doorway. Mr. MacArthur had lingered in the drawing room, and when I looked back, there he was, framed by the two doorways, so that the hallway was a tube of empty air along which we looked at each other. The air between us, that narrow line of sight, joined us in a kind of intimacy. At one end of that tube was the young woman who wondered how it would be to feel a man between her legs, and at the other, a young man whose gaze was full of a pressing urgency of attention. We had only seconds, but he knew how to use them. He put his hand on his heart with a delicate movement, a caress of himself, fingers spread on his coat, and tilted his head questioningly, submissively, yearningly. How much a person can say by nothing more than a tilt of the head. That picture, lasting a second, no longer, entirely disarmed canny Elizabeth Veal. As I would not for an instant have believed words, I believed that hand on heart and the whimsical appeal of that tilted head. Then Mr Kingdon came down the stairs, Mrs Kingdon looked back towards me, Mr MacArthur put his hat on, and Miss Veal sailed out ahead of him, down the steps, and out into an afternoon that all at once seemed so lovely as to make my heart race. Flirtation. Pretty good fun, isn't it? <laughs> She's an easy gish, isn't she? But, <laughs> but interestingly, though, because, as you say, she, she had no prospects, really. Her father yeah. had died, her beloved grandfather, who really taught her so much about farming. Uh, it was no longer viable that she lived with him. And she was looking probably at a, at a life as an unmarried woman because she had mm. no dowry. So I guess her own ambition comes through and seizing the opportunity, seizing the day. That's right. And although John MacArthur was not an easy or a particularly pleasant man, he was very clever. I've drawn him as being one of those people who can do um, very funny but very cruel mimicry of people, can, can take people's mannerisms off. So he would have, when he chose, been entertaining company. I mean, we've probably all known men like this, men who are trouble, basically, but they're a lot of fun to be with. And that combined with, at other times, being totally withdrawn and kind of sulky, that's kind of intriguing for a particularly young, innocent woman. And as she says, she knows she's not going to marry him, so she can kind of flirt with him because it's a kind of practice run for if some other person, I mean, she might possibly have hoped, I mean, she lived with the clergyman's family, she might have hoped that some boring curate would come along and, you know... <laughs> So, you know, John MacArthur, for all his unpleasantness, she describes him as, as kind of having an inner fire, a kind of banked fire, and she could see that he was trouble and she could see, as so many of us have seen to our detriment, that that was very attractive. So the arrival in Sydney and then meeting Mr Dawes, taking lessons with him and then an attraction grows, 
It's an unexpected connection, Kate. And then what is even more unexpected after that is the group of Indigenous women who often come to sit outside Mr Dawes' study area. And it does seem highly unlikely to me that early European settlers, particularly women, had the courage or the um, the opportunity, I guess, to sit with a group of Indigenous women. But you use this in an incredibly powerful and important way. How important was that Dawes connection to setting up that scene? Yes, look, I think in one of Elizabeth MacArthur's letters, there is a long episode where she is actually visited by an Aboriginal woman that became a, a bit of a friend. Daringa brings, brings her baby to show Mrs MacArthur. So I think that there was a certain amount of flexibility about all that. And, of course, William Dawes is the person we basically have to thank for the Gadigal language. He was a linguist as well as an astronomer, and he made the only systematic record of the Gadigal language of that of Sydney Cove. And in the course of that, of course, he got to know the local Indigenous people, some of them, very well. So it's it's certainly plausible that she went out there and met them. And for me, not only did I want... To, to give the book, I mean, her relationship with her marriage is pretty unhappy because a John MacArthur is not, you know, not a, not a great person to be married to. So I wanted to give the book a very positive heart. But more, and I also wanted her to learn the things that you learn by being in love with someone and by having a really, to be fully met by another person's personality and be kind of enlarged by their love. I wanted that to happen to her. But behind all that was the other thing that to me was really important with this book, which was to explore that whole thing that I've come back to in all of those four books that you've mentioned in this trilogy set in early Australia, the unfinished business that we now have with the Indigenous people. So the fact that she could go out and visit Dawes and through him meet in a very rather nice way because Dawes's relationship with the Indigenous people is clearly one of respect, interest. He knew they were different and, and he loved them for the difference, whereas most of the settlers distrusted and disliked them for the difference. So it was a very positive thing. So it gave me a way of introducing that really important subject. I mean, this book is about Elizabeth MacArthur, but it's also about what I mentioned in the beginning, what we know and why we think we know it and the prejudices embedded in our knowledge. You know, for many years, the the working title of this book was Do Not Believe Too Quickly. So, you know, don't believe the myths about Elizabeth MacArthur being this happy, devoted, devoted wife. But also, don't necessarily believe the stories that have come down to us from settlers about Indigenous people. Take that with a big pinch of salt. So that was my kind of... You know, that was the getting in under the radar aspect of this book. The first of these journeys of yours, uh, The Secret River, gosh, it only seems like yesterday, but it was 15, 16 years ago, and Australia and our view of history was was different then to what it is now indeed. I think we've, we're still evolving, mm. but a lot's happened in the last decade. The, the response of The Secret River I found just so interesting on so many different levels. And I and I wonder what surprised you the most about people's responses to it, both positive and perhaps negative, people mm. who were angry that you were trying to rewrite some sort of narrative. 
Yeah, look, there was an argument about whether fiction writers should ever write about history. Well, I'm not the first novelist to have written historical fiction. I mean, Homer started it, Shakespeare continued it, and Hilary Mantel is our kind of exemplar of it. So the fact that I had taken history and turned it into fiction upset a few people, but that was basically their problem. The thing that surprised me, well, two things surprised me. One was very positive, which was the absolute tsunami of letters from readers that I got or emails from readers. And basically what they all said was was the reason I had written the book, which was I want to know, I want to understand. Uh, reading the history for whatever reason doesn't quite do it for me. Your book has opened this. It has made it accessible. I can probably now go and read the history, in fact, and see where you know what you've done with it. But it's opened the door. That's, such, that's, a, that's such a compliment, Kate. That's such a look. Oh, uh, that I was in tears. I mean, these letters would come in. I had written the book because I had that need to try to understand my own family history in relation to that. And here was I obviously representing a whole lot of other people. And what I had done for myself to try to explore it had also helped other people. So that that was fabulous. And when the play and the film were made, Again, I was absolutely in tears at the thought that something that had been such a private project in many ways for me, investigating my great-great-great-grandfather, had sparked off the imagination of other people and they had gone and done completely different things with it. The little thing that I had done in my little workroom all by myself, struggling away thinking it was a failure, had actually opened doors for those other people. So that was... That was a surprise because I didn't think the book would go anywhere or do anything. In fact, I sent it to my agent with great trepidation and I remember sending it along saying, here it is, I'm not sure if it's a book. And my agent, Barbara Mobbs, just wrote back one line, yes, it's a book. <laughs> so that was the that was the fabulous thing. Uh, look, the only little downside was that I had expected to be attacked by people who said, massacres didn't happen, none of that bad stuff happened. It was the time of the history wars. And a man called Keith Winshuttle, who I think now is kind of sunk without trace, was making a big fuss about how, how in fact, there had been almost no violence on the frontier. And I had expected to be attacked by him. So the great surprise was to be attacked by a couple of historians that basically we would agree about all this stuff. They just felt I was kind of poaching on their territory. Uh, so that was a surprise, but the the overwhelming positive thing was all those readers for whom my own exploration had meant something. You mentioned Dame Hilary Mantel of Wolf Hall fame and, and other wonderful historic, historic novels. In a speech a couple of years ago, she addressed the issue of writing historical fiction and she said, in imagination we chase the dead shouting, come back. We may suspect that the voices we hear are an echo of our own and the movement we see is our own shadow, but we sense the dead have a vital force still. They have something to tell us, something we need to understand. Using fiction and drama, we try to gain that understanding. I don't claim we can hear the past or see it, but I say we can listen and look. There are techniques we can use. Mm. I wonder what your thoughts are about that. Yes, I agree with every every word of that. 
the thing is, it's a bit like history. I mean, there is no one history. There are every generation rewrites history. And in fact, in any one generation, we have whole shelves of history books because there isn't just one history. And fiction is the same kind of thing. It's just another perspective on that. Uh, historians and novelists, I think, we have our feet under the same table. We do very different things with the sources that we find. But look, anything that expands our understanding of the past expands our understanding of the present. And certainly for me, I don't know if Hilary Mantel feels this, but for me, the whole point of writing about the past, particularly Australia's very, un, you know, it's a very nasty past. And as a, as a, as a descendant of colonists, well, in fact, all non-Indigenous Australians have to work out a way of living with that. So if, if looking at the past through fiction helps us understand the present, then that's, that's why it's important. We can't just look at the present. We have to understand where it came from. And so how did you begin with this story? Uh, was it Elizabeth who came to you first or was it indeed, I wondered today when I was thinking about the book, you know, John is the one we know historically so much about. Was it John, in fact, who came to you, or, or what was the what was the sort of the catalyst? Yeah, look, it really was that letter where she says, "I blush at my error." I, I never liked John MacArthur, even when I knew nothing about him. I just had a kind of sense that maybe it's his portrait. There's only one portrait of him, and he he looks like a very arrogant man. He's got that kind of you know that kind of look, uh, even on the two dollar note. So it was always always Elizabeth. And particularly with women, I do love to, to tell the story of the unregarded people. One of my early books was called Joan Makes History, and it was about all the, all the great moments of Australian history that we all know about, like the landing of Captain Philip or the landing of Captain Cook, uh, both actually. You know, there were women there, certainly with Philip. There were hundreds of women there, but they're never mentioned. So I turned the whole thing around and foregrounded, in each case, a woman who was there at that great moment. So it's that kind of, it's almost like drawing moustaches on the pictures in the history books. It's a slightly irreverent way of putting back what is missing from most of the recorded history because it was written by men. I'm not blaming historians, but the, the historical record is by and large written by men. So when you find something like Elizabeth MacArthur's letters, which are a fabulous resource, and in fact, I'm publishing a selection of her letters to kind of be a companion piece to the book. When you have a resource like that that shows you a little bit about what a woman was like, it's very exciting. We've been forgotten for too long. Oh, hear, hear. <laughs> I was very excited uh, a couple of months ago to see that uh, A Room Made of Leaves was shortlisted for the Walter Scott Award. And for those people who have no idea about this award, uh, I confess until I became a bookseller, I did not know either. But, of course, it's named in honour of the great, many would argue, the, the person who invented the historical fiction novel format, Sir Walter Scott of England. And I gather the award is the result of a very keen, obsessed fan of Walter Scott's writing who had lots and lots of money and decided to start this award. But it is, of course, very prestigious. And this year you were beaten at the post by Hilary Mantel. <laughs> um, yes. 
for her mirror and light, but you were in great company, dare I say, with a couple of other Australians. But what did that award mean to you? Did it come as a surprise? It, 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 because it, it really, I mean, it really touched my heart that I don't know why I, I wouldn't have thought it possible that Australians could be in an award like that. But, of course, it makes total sense. That's right. We do still have a bit of that cultural cringe, don't we? Like history belongs to Europe. So I thought because it was such an English award, particularly English and Scottish too, but they cast their net wide and I think the judges were enlightened because of the choices, Um, Marcus Zusak and also Dictionary of Lost Words as well was in other books. So I I felt enormous pride and I guess that's right, that's a cultural cringe response too. Look, I feel exactly the same. In fact, it's a, a remote descendant of Sir Walter Scott who started the prize. Oh, that I didn't and realize. He's an extremely generous, kindly, and thoughtful man. I mean, all the people on the shortlist got some money as well as the winner. And now that doesn't usually happen, but it acknowledges that there can only be one winner, but everybody is kind of worthwhile. So he's done a fabulous job. And what he's done, you said at the beginning that, you know, historical fiction is often confused with historical romances, the kind of bodice ripper thing. And what he's done and what the prize does is fully say, yes, there may be romances in a piece of historical fiction, but it is a deeply serious endeavour to truly understand something about humanity and who we are because that's where we came from. I was particularly lucky and struck by that because... The cover of the paperback in England does signal historical romance. I'm horrified by it. It's got a few leaves and kookaburras and things, but it's also got a little silhouette of a, a romantic a 19th century woman with a, you know, she's got a, obviously got a corset on and, you know, it's the whole little flowing hair, the whole, the whole cliché. And I look at that with kind of horror and I think I have not written People who want to read a a historical romance would be disappointed and puzzled by my book. And people who want to read my kind of book, which is quite meta, it's quite literary, wouldn't pick it up because of that. Well, I think I know the answer to this, Kate, but can't writers have a say in the different editions of their book covers? Uh, Only up to a point. (laughs) Only up to a point. I'm very well served by my Australian publishers. They are terrific. And the covers that they do for me are terrific. The Australian cover is wonderful. But I probably shouldn't be, no doubt, this podcast will go to England. But I was very disappointed. I tried very hard to push back against it. But there comes a point when they say, we ran it past the sales team. And this is what the sales team say that the booksellers will like. And at that point, what can you do? Well, I tell you what, your bodice ripper fan, when they start to read about massacres and so on, will get the fright of their lives and good on them. They just, they, you know, maybe there's a new audience that needs to be educated. Just on that, and again, I don't want to give away too much of the plot because people may not have read it, but incredibly profound moment in the book and the way Elizabeth responds to this news, Kate, this ongoing relationship between black and white Australia in its infancy, which of course started as a curiosity with both parties and a certain respect and reverence very quickly turned nasty as the land grab became more significant and it was all about the money. (laughs) Is this a thing that you want to continue exploring in future books? 
I think I can't not explore it because for me it really is unfinished business. I think it, it, it probably is for all non-Indigenous Australians. And there is no simple path forward. And with The Secret River, I looked at the actual conflict about land. With this book, with this book, I did something, um, something different. I wanted to look at the stories that we had told about the conflict or the stories that were told back then and to try and think, uh, let's, let's deconstruct them a bit. Let's not take them at face value, those stories that came down from, from our non-Indigenous sources, because there are no written Indigenous sources, obviously. There's, there's oral history, but because we disrupted those cultures so savagely, the oral history, much of that is gone as well. So we somehow have to try to enter a vacuum of information and stories about the past once we leave the white stories behind. And I, I personally, I haven't, I, that's a journey that I'm still on, I think is the way I could say that. I mean, white Australians all are sort of secondhand in the sense that we all came from somewhere else. And so we have to work even harder than many people at working out what it means for us to be Australians here on essentially somebody else's land. What do we do about that? We need a lot of books to tell us about, to, to help us think about that. And when you think about plethora of wonderful writers, we really do punch above our weight when you mm. describe it like that. Kate, we're recording this wonderful discussion for an episode of The Book Pod and we always ask our guests one question, which is a question without notice to you, I'm afraid, so your brain now is probably spinning a million miles an hour. But it's the old yet nevertheless always fascinating question of if you were marooned on a desert island, what one book would you really, or is indeed there, is there an author with a suite of books you would like to have in that shipwreck with you? Oh, my gosh, that's such an unfair question. You know, the Shakespeare, Shakespeare in the Bible, or people always come back to just because they, are, they don't open themselves instantly to interpretation. And I think that's what you need on a desert island, something that you can read once and then read it again and you're reading a whole different book and then read it a week later and it's a different book again. So I think I would have to come down like a lot of other people with those. Anything that's rich and difficult, that's what I'd like. Kate, it's really wonderful to talk. And just uh, one of our final questions was, uh, what are you working on now? Are you allowed to give us any sort of vague hints oh. or ideas, apart from the collection of Elizabeth MacArthur's letters? I'm doing, oh, look, it's so crazy. I, I can't even put it into words. I'm not sure if it's anything. But I said to a friend the other day, it's like it's standing in the doorway. It won't let me pass to any other project. I have to deal with it. So watch this space. Oh, that's very exciting. Well, I hope you do deal with it and deal with it quickly because we want another book. <laughs> Kate, Kate Grenville, it's been just a joy, as I said, to have you with us today. Thank you so much for your time and I look forward to many more future discussions. I've really enjoyed today. Thank you. Thanks. I've loved it too. Thanks very much.